Hi, I'm Simon Drew, and you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes of the show, as well as articles and information about my one-on-one alignment coaching, then you can head to my website. It's simonjedrew.com. If you do have the means to support the show, then I'd love to see you in my Patreon community. Just go to patreon.com forward slash simonjedrew, where you'll also get access to over 240 episodes recorded before 2020. But for now, enjoy the show. Hi there, my name's Simon Drew, and welcome to the Practical Stoic Podcast. Now, today I have a repeat guest on, uh, the wonderful Dirk Marling. And, uh, and Dirk was on, uh, I think, a couple of months ago, and uh, we had a really fascinating conversation around the, uh, the philosophy and theology, uh, the metaphysics of, of Stoicism, uh, which is incredibly fascinating stuff. But I kind of reached out to him and said, hey, you know, you're always welcome to come back on. And we kind of went back and forth about a few topics that we could discuss in this next interview. And uh, what we decided on was the dichotomy of control, because this is obviously one of the most common ideas that people cite when they're talking about Stoicism and its influence on their lives and on the world. And and it's just this idea, as you all know, that there are some things within our control and some things that are not. And so it's best to focus on those things within our control. Now, Dirk wanted to have a conversation about this because he has uh, some pretty strong views uh, about uh, the treatment of this idea in modern times and how it has uh, in some ways been perverted to mean uh, somewhat of the opposite of what it was originally meant to be taken as uh, by Epictetus, who was, of course, the the uh, philosopher who coined this idea. And, you know, I think that the biggest thing that I get out of this conversation that I'm sharing with you today uh, is is just the the speed at which we allow ourselves to either throw an idea away or to change that idea so that it suits uh, our own needs or so that it suits the lifestyle that we're living. Uh, you know, we do this all the time, of course, um, and I do think that it's really helpful to remember, as Dirk points out in this interview, uh, that there's a system of ideas here developed by some of the most intelligent people uh, who have you know, ever lived. Um, some of the wisest people might be the, the best way to put it. Uh, and, and so, you know, if we're going to change these ideas uh, to suit our own needs, then, then we better at least understand the ideas and what they actually really mean and what they're supposed to do for us in our lives. I think that that's a really fair call. So anyway, we have a really fascinating discussion for you here. And, uh, and I present to you, without any further ado, Dirk Marling. Okay, so Dirk, welcome back to the show. And I'm, I'm really glad to have you here again. Um, I got some really great feedback from the listeners of, you know, of our last interview. Um, I guess what I appreciate most about um, the way that you approach Stoicism is that you have a... Uh, you have a really broad, uh, I guess, net that you cast over the philosophy, trying to take the theology as well. You know, a lot of the um, the principles that we don't often talk about today because we are living in, you know, more of a society that doesn't really care to talk much about the soul, things like that, you know, talk about the theology of these, these philosophies. Um, 
but you, you mentioned a few topics that you wouldn't mind discussing in future episodes. And so today we're going to be talking obviously about uh, the dichotomy of control. So set me up for this, you know, why is it that you felt like the dichotomy of control needed such a, a, a revisit um, in, in our modern times? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me back. Uh, it's very good seeing you and it's nice to be back on your, on your program. I'm glad you got some positive reviews on it. Uh, it's always hard with a protreptic style to attract people. Like I said, it was easier 2000 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Dichotomy of control. Few, few things make me angry in stoicism, but the, the misappropriation of the uh, dichotomy control is certainly one of them. <laughs> um, you you see it bantered around and it it certainly is one of these concepts that if you want to take things out of context and and use them as a life hack um the dichotomy of control seems like it's it's almost made for that right i've, mm. I've heard people say i don't need all the stoicism but you know this dichotomy of control i i, I can use that all by itself and um, based on our last discussion, how stoic physics leads to ethics and the dichotomy of control is an eth ethical uh, technique, uh, you'd know that that just doesn't make sense, right? It's a haphazard way of crafting a life. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm getting a sense that you, you feel like it, it, it's really necessary that we use the dichotomy of control uh, alongside other principles that uh, I, I guess strengthen its um, its purpose, you might say. Well, it's more like we need to understand the the physics from which the dichotomy of control arises, right? Mm. Um, so let's let's just kind of define what the dichotomy of control is. It's the opening yeah. of the discourses in Epictetus. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, some, some things are under your control and some things are not. Pretty simple statement seems to be a revelation to some people that some things are under your control and some are not. Um, you see on many discussion lists, et cetera, that people say, yes, once, once I grasped this, it, it helped me to not deal with things that I can control and concentrate on the things that I can control. Well, and there you already start seeing the, the misunderstanding, the misuse of it, if you don't understand physics, um, because so you think there are certain things that are more under your control and others that are less under your control. No, and your interlocutor would say, well, yes, of course, right? So changing the current government is less under my control, but studying for a tennis game is more under my control. So absolutely, you know, I concentrate on the things that are more under my control. And, and even if you, you look at, uh, I think Irvin was probably the worst perpetrator there who, who invented the trichotomy of control, right? To, to codify these things. There are things that are under your control, there are things that are not under your control, and then there are things that, you know, are a little bit under your control. And the moderns just grabbed it and ran with it. There's some diagram that Massimo Pigliucci did, and 
I think it's even the first thing on there, right? Ancient Stoicism, dichotomy, modern Stoicism, trichotomy. And you, you need to ask yourself, right, if we all think that Epictetus was such a genius and had such deep insight, how could that genius miss that there's a third class of things that are somewhat under our control? I just refuse mm. to believe that a guy like Epictetus would not have seen that. Mm. Um, and, and in particular, I think that if you look at the, again, protreptic teaching style of the ancient Stoics, they really like to make things black and white, right? They, they mm. talk to like you're either a, a sage or you're a slave, right? You're either an inch or a mile, doesn't matter under the surface of the sea and you're drowning doesn't matter how much you know you may be as close as you want but you're still drowning or you're above and you're breathing so they like to make things very very prominent and very clear so that there's no weaseling out because they knew right we all kind of like we want to have our cake and eat it we yeah it's like a little bit under my control no either it is under your control or it isn't and we moderns don't like that right we, we like that there's shades of gray and we need to talk about it and you know you shouldn't be that hard on yourself and well that's not traditional stoicism traditional stoicism is binary it's like you're either drowning or you're breathing you're either a sage or a slave it's either under your control or it isn't. Um, and, and, and it leads to, so if, if you think it through, what's under your control leads to, again, physics, a, a very or somewhat uncomfortable uh, conclusion for people who are queasy with concepts like God and fate and cosmos and soul because the only thing that is totally under your control is your soul, right? Mm. You, nothing else, right? Your job, not under your control. Your fate, not financial future, not under your control. Um, how happy your wife is, not completely under your control. So the only thing that's really in your control is your soul. And people may say, well, yeah, but what about the next exam, right? I could study or I could not study. So it's somewhat under my control. Yeah, there are external things out there where you have a certain impact, right? So to study for your next exam is more under your control control or let's use a different word you have more influence on it than electing the next government right where millions of other voters are on it too but the that means how much influence do you have in the external world it's on a spectrum and you don't need stoicism if, if you need stoicism to figure that out you're really in a bad spot right mm -hmm. you should have learned that in kindergarten that you know, lunch hour is when the lunch lady decides that the lunch comes in, while which toy you pick is under your control unless the bully stands 
by the plate chest. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, that goes more into desires and aversions. So to, to bring it back to this black and white view that the Stoics have, which is almost like mathematical theory thinking, right? So why don't you have total control over studying for an exam? Well, because somebody may break into your house and hold you hostage that night, right? So sorry, mm. can't study that night, right? So you, you, you really got to think about no matter what happens, what's under my control, right? Think of the best, the worst, the whatever case, what is really everything else considered? What is that is finally under my control? And it's my soul. And my soul mm. basically means how, how do I see things coming in? Do I agree? Do I not agree? Right? Is, is this wave going to kill me and the ship or not? Uh, what, what aversions and desires do I have? The practice of the, uh, desire and aversion. So do I want to be a rock star or do I want to live in uh, harmony with nature or do I right so do I want to be a virtuous person um, and finally my impulse to action yes I want mm. to study for that exam yes I want to practice for the tennis match but the actual execution once it comes out of that impulse and turns into doing something now you're dealing with external forces again and I think Admiral Stockdale, right, the famous uh, Navy general shot down over North Vietnam, he wrote a whole book about uh, not being able to act on those impulses. His captors would dictate what he did. Hmm. So that in a nutshell is how the dichotomy of control gets abused and misused. And, and my friend uh, James uh, uh, Daltrey he says, well, if, if, because you said earlier, well, you need to see it with other elements of stoicism. Hmm. So if you decouple it from that, um, you can actually use it for pretty evil things, right? Well, stoicism and virtue should just leave to good, uh, lead to good things. There's, there's nothing else, right? That's what virtue is. It's hmm. something that can lead to nothing but hmm. good. Again, very black and white, nothing but not degrees, mostly, most of the time, only in Greece, on the mountain, on a Thursday evening. No, 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 all the time. So what, what James says is, you know, assume there is a school shooter, God forbid, some evil, nasty person who wants to shoot up a school. Um, doesn't sound very virtuous to me. Didn't pick the right values. But hey, with the dichotomy of control, he can figure out what's more under control, what's less under control, the place you pick for the shooting, the rifle, the aiming, the time of day. So this uncoupled from, from virtue and, and from other stoic concepts, the dichotomy of control can go haywire. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I find so much of what you're saying here really interesting. And I want to, I want to break down a few points that I find interesting. Uh, I want to also extend an olive branch to those people who are using it in the more, in the more modern sense that, that we've been given. Right. Because for, for me, I don't see any problem in, in people taking this idea 
and saying, all right, now we're just going to apply this one little idea to say, you know, like is so often used, like maybe problem solving or, you know, business decisions, things like that. I, I get that people are going to do that and I get that it's really helpful for people. So I say, you know what, if that's your gateway into philosophy, fine, you know, and you're using this principle and it helps you. I'm happy if it helps you. However, um, what we're talking about here is for those people who want to go a little bit deeper into the idea and say, okay, well, what does it actually mean? What does it mean when I'm aiming at virtue? Um, and, and how can, how did they actually mean this? I think that you make a really good point and something that I have probably thought about before, even though I refused to actually listen to that thought and go deeper into it. You mentioned that how could Epictetus not have thought about the fact that there are some things that are partially in our control and yet like how could he have not considered that and of course he would have considered that so he must be ha- he must be talking about something completely different and i think that th- essentially what we're talking about here is uh, when people use this idea, they detach it from the the corpus of Stoic ideas, which is a, is is a cohesive whole that we need to use. And there's a problem of the level at which we should be focusing on our control, because if you're focusing on the level of well, I'm you know I get to study for this exam well, you're skipping all of the parts between that part and the actual root of the, of the, or the germ of the control, which comes from deep within your soul, like you mentioned. Um, and so essentially what we're saying here is that, um, it is black and white. Uh, and I've had these suspicions this year because if you follow the trail all the way down deep into like, where does the control actually come from? Where is the part where you can actually switch something on and say, this is going to happen. It happens in here. It doesn't happen in anything external. It's all internal. Um, and my final thought, something that really helped me to think about it like this, although I still, I will admit in my life, I still think about like, uh, the, the kind of trichotomy is a helpful tool for say problem solving. Um, you know, it, it's helpful for people in that sort of sense. But the biggest thing that helped me to realize this was a story that I heard from Alan Watts, right. And we can take this back to the kind of mystic origins of uh, stoicism as well. But he tells this story and he says, when we're looking for our higher self, that, that ego, that, that thing that we want to be the best version of ourselves, you know, it's, it's kind of like when the police go into a multi-story building to chase a perpetrator or a criminal, the police go into the first floor and the perpetrator goes to the second floor. And then the police go to the second floor, the perpetrator goes to the third and so on and so on until, you know, they're on the roof. Right. And it's like, when you're looking for that thing inside you, that root of consciousness, that root of everything that, that you could change. Um, it does go as deep as the soul, a, a conception of, well, where is it? We don't really know. It's nothing that we can necessarily prove, but it's like a, it's, it's a foundational idea. Right. And so it's very hard to find that thing. Does that, does that kind of resonate with what you're saying here? It's like, we need to go to the absolute root and then everything else is external to that. Yeah. I think you're, you're describing it in, in 
a different metaphor, right? Because mm. there's a reason I think that that Epictetus put this as the first thing. He he frequently says that uh, we should first deal with our desires and aversions. That's the most important thing. Um, but to do that, you need to work on your soul. Hmm. Um, you know, even though in 2.14, he says the first thing you need to know is that there's a God, etc. But he puts it like in position 2.14. Hmm. <laughs> um, yes, so the, the, the first thing that he actually, or Arian, actually puts first is some things are under your control, some things are not, which calls to the fact that this whole thing that follows all the four or six books of the discourses are about how to polish your soul, right? Mm. It's not how to muck around with the world and be a big macho guy and decide, you know, ah, I should deal with that, I can't deal with that, maybe I should do it. No, what he's saying in a koan Chinese riddle fashion is basically forget about the outside world, concentrate on what's going on inside you, your beliefs, your perception, your thinking power, um, your, your harmony with the universe, your impulse for action, right? The whole three disciplines that create mm -hmm. an uh, informational processing flow inside this human information processing machine, as you would say today. And don't don't look at the outside. It's it's pretty fatalistic mm. in that way. And just quickly, um, all those and, things and, that and you're again, talking I, about, like perceptions, uh, your action, um, th th that's all kind of words that you would use to describe the soul, right? Consciousness is this because I know that some people are going to listen to this and they're <laughs> going to think, well, I don't believe in the soul. Well, you do because the soul is just another word for consciousness or the root of of, of everything, right? Yeah, I mean, to the ancients, the soul had eight parts and mm. what we today would call cognitive functions and memory and epistemics mm. and sensation and perception um, as, as you know, thanks for, for kind of clarifying, uh, the ancients would put into your soul, right? Mm. So the yeah. soul was an amalgam of, of cognitive functions, but also of, of moral agency. Mm. Right, and we frequently we we are conditioned because of our upbringing, mostly in the Judeo-Christian world, to think of the soul in a more Platonic or Christian sense of something that is separate from us, that is given to us by a separate Creator, and that can be tortured in hell for uh, the things that we shouldn't have done. Mm. Well, to the Stoics, none of that applies, right? The soul is is the essence of you, and it's a it's it's an agency complex of memory, thinking, acting, um, and and uh, moral agency, right? How yeah. how how much have you advanced your your maturity? Mm. Um, so so back to the concept of this this koan or this this riddle, right? I mean, the first part is the outside world and you said you know when you think about business or you think about school or acting in the world as a smart person you judge how much you can impact a situation you know what mm. you don't need stoicism for that mm -hmm. you know you should have you, your parents should have told you that you you should have figured that out in the sandbox 
uh, that you can't climb that tree, right? You won't be a princess. You know, it's like you, you learn to deal with reality. So that first call is really about the only things under your control are those in your in your soul, and and Epictetus lists them your desires, uh, your wishes, um, your aversions, your, uh, your judgments, etc. And, and he goes even further and says, if you and if you don't believe this, you set yourself up for trouble. Hmm. Right. And I think uh, either Chris Fish or Scalengi in his uh, pro-racist uh, paper did a very nice take on four personality types. So you can use this to construct personality types. So the first one would go, um, you're the person who thinks that you can control what you control and who thinks that you can control what you can't control, right? So mm. you think you can control everything. You're a megalomaniac, right? You set yourself up for first success and then for failure and, and mm. hurt because you overextend what you think you can control. Mm. So the second one is who thinks they can control what they control and thinks they can't control what they can't control. Well, that's the wise man. That's mm. what we're shooting for, right? We're trying to understand what actually we can control and what we can control. That way we avoid failure and disappointment. The third type is the opposite of that. So the mm -hmm. things that you can control, that person thinks they cannot control. And the things that you cannot control, they think they can control. Right? I'm just mathematically mm -hmm. going through the permutations here. So the fool is thinking the opposite of reality and will always run into trouble. And we all know a person like that, right? We know a person who, who doesn't really know what they can and can't do, but always goes out after the wrong thing. Hmm. And then you have the person who control and thinks they can control what they can control. So this is total pessimism, uh, can't get anything done, horrible, don't even go there. But the only way to lead a successful life which is what a philosophy of life is about, is to recognize, right, to, 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 to stop yourself from disappointments and going down the wrong path is realize what you can control and realize what you can't control. Well, and then we take the things we can control and we can peel them back and say, well, some of them I have a little more influence over and a little less, but in the end, it's the archer, right? You shoot as good as you can, and then the wind and fate decides whether you hit the mark or not, but it's outside your soul. Hmm. Uh, which, which, you know, bears similarity again to virtues. You can take the most desirable indifferent, health or wealth or whatever it may be, and you can add up as much as you want it won't tilt the scale because virtues are on a different scale. And, mm. and the same is true here, right? You can muck around with as much of the things out there that you have a little influence over. It, it, it does not tilt the scale of the only thing you have control over, which is your soul 
and the way that you advance your agency in the world. Hmm. And, and so essentially is, is what we're saying here is that <clears throat> this is a game to be played by the person who is truly seeking the aim of stoicism, which is wisdom, a virtuous life. Um, and, and if you're seeking that aim, then the, the path is to pour all of your effort into the, the protection and development of your soul or your cognitive abilities, your, uh, your, 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 uh, your consciousness. Um, and to let that be really the root of your efforts so that everything else from there can, it's not even that it's not even so that things from there can flourish. It's so that you'll be able to deal with whatever comes externally because you've got that inner citadel, as we say, you know, you've got that fortress in your mind. Is that, is that a fair, fair, fair way to put it? Um, you, you're going a little beyond where, where I think I would have gone with it, right? Mm -hmm. Because you put an effort and, and directing mm -hmm. your activity. Um, we're shooting, we're aiming a little lower to start with, which is how to, how to prevent disappointment, right? Mm. Which is not creating achievement, but it's basically, you, you don't want to have people score a goal on you, right? Well, mm -hmm. you're already starting to score goals yourself. Mm -hmm. So this is playing defense um, in the sense mm. that you're protecting yourself against disappointments in the world, right? If you think you can go out there and become a princess or a millionaire or a rock star, like good luck, right? Maybe, maybe not. But if you turn to your soul and want to polish it, you're guaranteed success. It is under your control, mm. right? The next step is, you know, does Apollo, how do you actively bring about a successful life? How do you actively push towards eudaimonia? Um, and, and to the Stoics, it's, it's a technique, right? It's a, it's a, an, a technical art. So you can, there, there's a simple line of reasoning that says in order to achieve eudaimonia, a successful life, a well-lived life, um, which, which is a rational life, uh, always, right? You, if, if you discover that rational is good, why would you at some point in time say, you know what, tonight I'll just get blasted. I'll give up this rationality tomorrow. I'll, I'll recover. No, mm -hmm. it's like you live rational. You always live rational to the fullest extent in a full life. So in other words, mm -hmm. you don't go into the Epicurean garden. You don't go into a monastery. You don't become a Zen monk and just sit there living a rational life to its fullest extent in some sheltered environment. No, you mm -hmm. go into the city and you live in the city. And guess what? The city is going to kick you, right? Fate is going to buck like an old mule. So guard yourself against it by saying, you know, it, it will. I'm not pegging my my happiness on what's happening out there um i'm pegging it on on polishing my soul and living this full life um so it it equips you with with uh, techniques and and hardiness to to get to that eudaimonia so to to finish that thought of how you get there right that extent in a full um active life in the city the way you get there is by developing art. it's a technical art it's not 
uh, fate or luck or a God-given gift. No, it's something you basically go to Epictetus school in the Copolis and learn how to be virtuous and, you know, there you go, you're on your way. Mm. But, but see, it's still polishing the soul. It still implies a certain effort, right? Like it's, it, it, and it also, I kind of like the interplay between um, these uh, Western philosophies and Eastern philosophies, because I, I think of the story of the the person who goes to the, the Buddhist guru uh, or the Zen guru and says, guru, you know, I, I, I suffer too much. And the guru says, well, maybe you desire too much. And he says, maybe I do desire too much. And so the guru says, well, why don't you go away and practice not desiring so much? And so he goes away and, you know, practices not desiring so much. And then he comes back two weeks later and he says, guru, uh, I've, I have curbed some of my desires. I don't desire so much, but I still desire to not desire. And the guru says, well, go away and desire to not desire to not desire. And then he goes back and two weeks later comes back. I can't, you can't do it. Like there's, there's no getting out of the trap of desire, whether you're desiring to create a, a full rich life for you and your family, or whether you're desiring to fortify your soul and to, or to polish your soul, there is no, curbing those desires and i guess this comes back to it because i don't think that epictetus said get rid of your desires he's pointed us in the right direction where those desires might want to be heading right which is to the polishing of your soul would that would that be a fair assumption yeah yeah it is right and and polishing your soul is is the technical art of developing virtue right and mm. if you want to put it into more modern information processing and and therapeutic terms um it is about debugging your belief system right mm. so uh, clearly a, a large part of what you read in epictetus and, and other stoic writers is that that we make wrong judgments well, wrong mm. judgments basically in today's terms means that your epistemic structure, your long-term memory, your beliefs, etc., is is misshapen, right? That's what every psychoanalyst does. That's what CBT and REBT are all about, is to reshape your, your cognitive belief structure so that, no, those people aren't looking at you because you're an idiot, right? No, that piece of cake was not given you to slight you. It was given to you. It wasn't given to you because there was a little girl who wanted it. Right? We always think of polishing your soul as this esoteric thing where you're sitting there with a whatever microfiber cloth and working on a spheric ball. Right? It's it's about um, pretty mundane things, such as correcting wrong beliefs questioning your beliefs right it's it's the old seneca method of sitting in the evening and calling your soul up in front of yourself to to reckon for what happened during the day what did you do well mm. what did you do not well what did you leave undone right reviewing your actions um off the clock so to say when you have time to look and don't have to immediately you know, react, give an answer, write a check, jump off a bridge, whatever, um, and and can look at it and say, well, let me reflect on that, right? That's the polishing part. We're all out there. We all got to do stuff. And 
Um, none of us is a sage yet. None of us is perfect. So we do things that we regret. Uh, we do things that are suboptimal, but we should sit back and reflect and correct that epistemic um, structure, long-term memory, beliefs, um, and, you know, to throw in an Aristotelian idea, because, I mean, those guys all lived at the same time. They all dealt with the concepts, and in the end, the, the differences are, are minor, right? It's like mm. Aristotle thinks you need good looks in order to be happy. Well, the Stoics call it the preferred indifference. Yeah, okay, I get the difference, but, you, you know, they're all kind of like going down the same direction. So mm. Aristotle says... Virtues are habits, right? You basically habituate certain things. Virtues start as a thing that you learn, and and then you, in information processing terms, you you, you proceduralize it. So when 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 I went to graduate school to become a psychologist the, the example was putting film into a camera we don't do that anymore these days but it's the only example i have ready at hand <laughs> so when when you first learn how to put a 35 millimeter film into the camera you read the instructions and you got to open the bag you pull it in and you wind and and it's it's a major procedure after about the 10th film you're like boom 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 learned a technical skill mm. and virtue is just like that right at first you learn theoretically about the concept oh so i have four virtues and the virtue of temperance is really not about just not drinking but it's about finding the right measure at the right so you think through these things you're an acted and then in your evening review you're like well wait a minute, I could have applied that concept. And slow by slow, you put the film in the camera one day after another, and you become more and more proficient until you're the master putter the film in the camera guy who can mm. do it in three microseconds with least amount of film loss. Yeah. Right. So it is a technical art, and it is also an element of polishing your your soul and it is completely under your control. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I think the analogy that I've heard is similar is is to driving a car. It's like or like a manual car, you know, for example. Like it's 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 difficult to get that at the start, especially when you're so young, but you know, after a few years, you'll get in the car and you'll drive two hours away to your destination. You won't even think about where you're going. You won't think about how to use the clutch. You won't think about anything other than what music you want to chuck on in the car, you know, like that's, that's it. And, and yeah, it is, you know, it is the same with virtue and anybody who has pursued uh, a, a more virtuous life will know this because after a while you just, it becomes a natural part of your behavior to do the things that you know are right. Now, not in every area of your life, you've got to, I think you've got to kind of pick those areas and say, okay, well, I need a bit more work over here. So what can I do up here to, you know, help that. But, um, I do like, I, I really, we, like, we are, we are what we do. repeatedly. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and, and so the whole idea is, why don't you start getting some better habits in your thinking in, in your internal world, which is the thing from which everything 
springs. Everything comes from that. Um, and you can take that idea as deep as you possibly want to go as well. Um, but yeah, this is, this is brilliant. I really like this. Um, I, I really like this conversation. I appreciate this kind of conversation because these ideas do deserve a much more in depth, uh, appraisal. And I always say to people, like, if you just want some of the practical elements of, of this philosophy, uh, how you take it which is the way that I got into it. You know, I got into it because I thought that's a good idea. I'll take that. That's a good idea. But, but as you progress in your philosophical study, uh, it should be something where you really spend some time thinking about these ideas, going a little bit deeper beyond what the podcast says, beyond what the book says, but what you, what you actually are able to, to get out of that idea uh, if you think about it properly and if you're thinking about it properly, you can go as deep as you want with these ideas, right? Yeah, but it's not only the depth, but it's the connectiveness, right? So you need a whole system. Um, a while ago, we talked about taking the dichotomy of control and using it in isolation and getting to pretty bad results with it. Hmm. So I, uh, most of us, I guess, started with seeing a good idea here and a good idea there and having a grab bag of good ideas and thinking we could cobble it together, right? Mm. And so I'm, I guess I'm not arrogant enough to think that I'm the one who can grab all these ideas and, and weld a new philosophy out of that, right? Greater minds have have not succeeded at that. So, and, and why would I want to do that, right? Why wouldn't I follow a great mind who's taken all these things and put them into a whole cloth where everything supports everything else? Who do I think mm. I am that I can do this by, oh, I take these stoic ideas, but then, ah, oh, this idea from Ayn Rand ain't bad. And I like Leibniz's idea of windowless monads, but uh, you know, that story, that, that cynic idea is bad. So you put all this together, right? And you have a metric screw and an SAE bolt, and you have a wooden peg and it, it just makes no sense. They're all beautiful by themselves, but together they don't build a machine. Mm. So at some point in time, you, you basically, if, if you want to have something where you sure it works and it's time tested and has kind of the, the national standard seal of approval, um, you need to buy into, I don't care what it is, Epicureanism, uh, to, to Spinoza, but something where a great mind has made sure that all these parts connect and then help each other out. Because, you know, if heads off, if you're the one who comes up with the next big philosophy, I want to be your follower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I see, I see your point. And I think it's an important one, which is that uh, you, you mentioned making a machine. I think that's a really good analogy. You want your life to work in such a way that all the parts do come together in order to create a machine that gives you a satisfying eudaimonic life, you know? Um, however, if you, you know, I, I think that the true seeker is not necessarily a follower, but as a student of these ideas. Now, now I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to get the whole picture of stoicism, but I also think that if, if you're after something that 
works with, you, you know, that there's people who really connect with Christianity, really connect with uh, Stoicism or Zen Buddhism or, you know, name any philosophical conglomeration of ideas. There's a bunch of people out there who uh, we could even say based on their nature and their culture, you know, based on biology, biologically who they are, as well as who they are, you know, um, based on their upbringing and everything, they seem to fit really well with those ideas. Um, But then I think there's also a lot of, I think that there's a lot of value in, in finding the ideas from these different philosophies that work really well together or strengthen each other. So I don't know. I, I, it's, it's a difficult one. It's some people are going to be the ones who go in and say, this whole system is for me and I'm picking it up and this is going to be my system. And I see the value in that. I also see the value in saying Buddhism has a brilliant idea here. And, but I, but I get what you mean. It's a tough one for me to figure out here. It's a tough one to figure out because then you well, are going to so have, you're going to have a peg, you're going to have this. Yeah. It, it, it is right. And it's probably a topic for, for another podcast because <laughs> um, in, in particular, you see a lot of people who merge stoicism and Buddhism. And we've mentioned mm. Buddhism quite a lot here, probably mm. to stay away from Christianity. But um, so there's a lot of people who say, yeah, the Buddhism is, uh, the, the stoicism is, is great. But the spiritual aspect, I can't buy into stoic physics. Therefore, I take Buddhism, which is pretty comparable. And didn't Alexander the Great go? And isn't that, it's like, um, and, and, you know, we're coming to the end here. So this is probably setting up the next cast. It's like, no, right? That, that for sure doesn't work. You may think it works for you for a while. But Buddhist meditation is losing the self. It's becoming one with it all. Yeah, but isn't that stoicism? No, stoicism is switching on your rationality, not losing it, right? So there, there is a reason why in the end you made that analogy about the police chasing the, the, the bad guy to the roof of the office building until the helicopter picks him up. Mm. Um, yeah, you're basically chasing, you know, that demi-urge, that God up floor by floor with Buddhism. And in the end, and you think you found it with Buddhism, but if you peel it back, what true Stoic piety is and how it links into the rest of Stoicism, you just rip apart Buddhism. It, it doesn't fit. It seems at the surface if you use words like meditation and tranquility and after a while it, it goes haywire, but we're far away from the dichotomy of control now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, maybe we're going to have to plan another conversation very, very soon. Um, going deeper into, yeah, the, the, the metaphysical, the theological, the spiritual of, of, of stoicism. And cause I'm very, very interested in that sort of stuff. Um, trying to, trying to figure it all out, you know, as you know, trying to pull these pieces together. And obviously you've, you've done that in many yeah. ways. So heck yeah, Dirk, thank you so much. This has been fun. As usual. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. 
If you'd like to sign up for email updates, join my Patreon meetup groups that we hold weekly, or if you'd like to offer feedback or suggestions for future guests or topics on the show, then you can head to simonjedrew.com. There you'll also find information about how we can work one-on-one together with my alignment coaching, based around the philosophical principles found in Stoicism. Finally, if you are on Facebook, then I'd love to see you in our group, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But hey, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I'll talk to you next time.